0: All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 50, Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to start looking at verse 15 on from there. And When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps, will, he hate, will Joseph hate us? and may actually repay us for the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of God, of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him and then his brother also went and fell down before his face and they said behold we are your servants and joseph said to them do not be afraid for i am for am i in the place of god but as for you you meant evil against me but god meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day, to save many people alive. For the last 12 weeks, we've been looking at the life of Joseph together for the purpose of reminding us that God is always with us. Now, there certainly will come times in our lives where we will begin to doubt that. It's often in the valleys of life. It's at the most difficult points of our life, times where we experience and confront crisis within our life. It is at those points that we would begin possibly to question, is God really with us at this time? And the reason we do that is because often, because often we try to determine and conclude God's presence in our life by the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And you could see how it's easy to believe that when things are going well, when things are good, when we feel blessed, to believe that God is with us. But when life goes sideways, and all of us know that life will go sideways, it's not a question of if, it's a matter of when. It's at those times that we may begin to question, is God still with me at this time? What we discovered in the life of Joseph was that it was at those times in Joseph's life that God was truly with him. It's, in, it's the same with us today. God is with us at those times, and often it is at those times where we may feel the closest to God if we realize that our feelings of abandonment aren't true. And that God is still walking with us at that moment. Today I'd like to look at specifically the concluding verse of the life of Joseph. It is a verse that you and I need to remember when we go through difficult times. And what Joseph had come to realize is what Paul the Apostle would later state in the book of Romans as one of the greatest guarantees that we can have as Christians concerning the interpretation of our personal circumstances. But if you look there with me, notice with me in verse 18, Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as many it is this day to save many people. The whole idea of Christmas was summed up in the announcement that the angels made that prophecy fulfilled concerning the birth, the first advent, the first arrival of Jesus Christ, when Matthew wrote, and he wrote in such a unique and eloquent way, he wrote to allow the Jewish people to see the fulfillment of various prophecies that were satisfied in the life and the person of Jesus Christ. And one of those is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. It should be on the screen behind me. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated what? God is with us. God with us. Jesus fulfills that. And after his ascension, he made various promises to those who followed him. Lo, I am behold, I am with you always. Remember what Paul later said in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 4. Concerning the Old Testament, he said, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we may, through the patience and comfort of Scripture, might have hope. The Old Testament is given to us as examples. Uh, I like to say it this way, New Testament theology illustrated for us in and through the lives of the individuals recorded there throughout the pages of the Old Testament. But God with us is an important idea that we as Christians must embrace, promising that he would never leave us nor forsake us no matter what no matter what we experience, no matter what we face, no matter what we do. As individuals who are found in Christ, we have that promise. But concerning Joseph, who we looked at now for the last 12 weeks, one of the aspects of Scripture that I think often escapes us is the aspect of time. You know, we sit down in our morning devotionals or our evening devotionals, we read the Bible and of course we read it page after page, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, and it unfolds before us in a seemingly seamless progression, that there isn't any time in between various portions of Scripture. And yet that couldn't be farther from the truth. For example, when individuals look and read the book of Acts, they often say, Why aren't we seeing the continuous miracles like they did in the book of Acts? And I often have to remind them that the book of Acts transpired over a 30 year period of time. In the life of Joseph, we read quickly through 22 years of his life. 22 years. As we went chapter, chapter, we looked at it in 12 weeks. It may be easy for us to conclude, Oh, Joseph, what are you complaining about? Or, what what do you mean? It's going by like that. But the Scriptures even paused us at a moment to remind us that those two years that he found himself just languishing away in prison were indicated by the term two full years. And in Hebrew, that meant... You know, just monotonous years, day after day, slowly going by. It's like sitting in a room just watching a clock. That's one of the worst things that you can do. Time goes by so, so slowly. But for Joseph, even though he endured those 22 years out of the 110 years of his life, At the end of it all, when his brothers were at their most vulnerable, now that Jacob has died, they believed that Joseph now would truly, being in the position of authority that he is, the second in all uh, authority in Egypt, would now take his revenge against his brothers. But when they approached him in the humble manner in which they had, Now, they must have forgotten all of the kindness that Joseph had shown them up until this moment. Or they believed it was a rouge, and he was simply waiting uh, for the right opportunity to strike back. But the brothers were fearful, still languishing in the idea of what they had done to Joseph. And yet, when they come before him in the manner in which they had, Joseph wept again, And assured them of his forgiveness towards them. And what he briefly says in verse 20, that what you did, you meant evil against me. Now let's just take a moment to remember what he is saying within those words. First of all, the time is 22 years of separation from his family. His family, his father, his brother Benjamin, all think that he is dead. And it all began in chapter 37 when we find and realize that Jacob had a favorite, and that favorite was Joseph, indicating that favoritism by the coat in which he gave Joseph. And of course, if you've grown up in a large family with many siblings, once a parent shows favoritism to one, you can almost imagine how joyful the rest of the siblings are. Oh, we're so glad that your mom and dad's favorite and they they hate us, right? Now, talk about sibling rivalry being stoked at that moment. But then he is given two dreams. And in those dreams, well, he's excited because he had a dream that all of them would one day bow down before him. Now, tell that to your older brother. See how that goes over. See what you get for Christmas this year by doing so. Being the oldest in my family, I know that if my sister came to me and said, Eric, one day you're going to bow before me. I would laugh her out of the house and then I would lock her out of the house. <laughs> His brothers began to hate him, conspire against him, plot and begin to plan. And finally when he had, they had the opportunity and they were alone with him, they threw him into a pit, leaving him to die. Only then to get the better idea, of, no, 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 why in the world should we just Let him to die. Let's sell him into slavery and at least make a few bucks off our brother. You know, anytime you think you're the only one with a dysfunctional family, all you have to do is read the Old Testament very quickly and realize it's been throughout history, okay? They sold him into slavery. The Ishmaelites took him into Egypt, were again sold into slavery in Potiphar's house. There, after doing everything right, he was then falsely accused, thrown into prison, and forgotten there. Even after assisting the two that he shared that prison with, the cupbearer forgot him before Pharaoh after being restored to his position. And then the Bible tells us from that moment, he had two full long years in prison. But finally, he finds himself before Pharaoh because Pharaoh has a dream also that no one could interpret. And after being placed at second in command of all of Egypt, the Bible tells us something very interesting about Joseph that he resolved in his heart and forgot his family because it was painful. But within it all, too, he wanted to move forward. He began to forgive, even though forgiveness hadn't been requested at that moment. But realizing that his family thought he to be dead, he decided to move forward. And lo and behold, after doing just that, the famine became so severe in the land of Egypt and the surrounding nations that he finds himself now faced with the reality that his brothers are coming now to Egypt for help, not recognizing him, not knowing who he was. Look for assistance from the man that they had persecuted in the way in which they had, and he gave it. And his family, therefore, then eventually was saved from the famine that became so severe in all of the land that the Bible said that the money actually failed, chapter 47. And the society was in such a place of desperation that they sold everything that they had, including themselves, that they may survive. And finally, after being reunited with Jacob and Benjamin, Jacob now dies and the brothers are afraid now joseph will take his revenge but joseph again reassures them he showed that their act of evil he now sees that in the grand scheme of things god used for good One of the conversations that the Christian church has had for the last 2,000 years is the relationship between man's free will and God's sovereignty. And usually what happens in that discussion or an individual's theological pursuit, you will discover that instead of allowing the two to coexist one with the other, they go to one extreme or the other. They see God's sovereignty incompatible with man's free will, and vice versa. And yet the Bible, in its majestic strategy, develops this theology from Genesis to Revelation in a way that we see the free will of man and the sovereignty of God in harmony. One person said it so well, so simply, but so profound. He asked the question, why are we trying to reconcile two things that are already friends? As the brothers went about the actions and made the decisions that they made, free will was being exercised, and yet governing it all was the sovereignty of God. Man can make the decisions that he or she chooses to make, and yet it perfectly fulfills the plan and purpose to God, of God. And you say, Pastor, how is that? Well, you know what? If I answered that, then I wouldn't be man, I would be God. In the 30 years of studying the Word of God and and just enjoying it thoroughly, and being blessed with some of the best teachers that I think our nation has raised up over the last 50 years, I've discovered one truth that I can never, ever deny. He is God, and I am not. He is infinite, and I am finite. The relationship between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man is one of those mysteries that God understands perfectly from His position, and we're all just catching up. But as we have seen through the life of Joseph, God is not only one step ahead of us, He's 10, 15, 20, 100 steps ahead of us knowing the beginning from the end, as Isaiah had stated. And the reason I bring all of this up to you this morning is because this is one of the greatest theologies that comforts my hearts. My hearts. I don't have two hearts. Comforts my heart when I am in a situation that is overwhelming, a crisis that is distressing, a situation that i have been blindsided by i can rest assured that even though i may not know how it's all going to turn out god does and i'm not here by accident i'm here because god has allowed me to be here for the betterment my betterment using these things to conform me further into the image of jesus christ allowing me to experience these things that I may better fulfill the purposes and plans that God has for me. I would love to say that the only way that God needs to work in our life is just one continual stream of blessing after another. But we know that not to be true, don't we? For we often know that as he chisels us, as a sculptor chisels a piece of fine stone into the statue that he wants or she wants it to become, those chiselings in our life are often the most difficult times that we go through in life. And it's in those moments that I can be assured of this, that the hammer is hitting the chisel and God is conforming me into the image of Jesus Christ. Joseph learned this lesson. Oh, what you meant for evil, the sovereignty of God has turned and changed and brought about something good. You know, Job, Job, the oldest book of the Bible, Job in his minimal understanding of God, and I don't say that disrespectfully, but theologically, he didn't have the uh, blessing of the New Testament, did he? He didn't have the blessing of the Old Testament that we have. He had a very minimalistic understanding of God and yet was still perfectly faithful, wasn't he, to God? But one conclusion that Job had come to, even at that point in time in the history of man, is that nothing that man does can ever interrupt, hinder the plan and purposes of God. And Joseph realized that also. So, whatever you're going through today, it's not an accident. You aren't simply just unlucky. God didn't take His eye off of you for a minute like a parent, and you ran away and ran into a glass window. Anybody else do that? I, I did that once. The windows were really clean at the Woodfield Mall, and I went right into it. I face-planted vertically, <laughs> if that's possible. I think, I think there was a nose and lip print on the uh, glass. We're never out of the reach of God, even when it's self-inflicted. And I'll show you why I can be confident of that in just a moment. But before we leave Joseph, I think it's necessary to read the remainder of chapter 50 together, where it's recording the death of Joseph. And the Hebrew language that is used there, you might find very interesting. For example, in verse 22, So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, the children of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you. And bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, why do I direct your attention to this? It appears that the conclusion of Joseph's life, when he's now older and looking back over the course of his life, there is language used here in this portion of Scripture that indicates that Joseph saw himself having a full, rich life. And it is found in that interesting saying that is found in verse 23, that the sons were brought up on Joseph's knee. This is a term that is affectionate. It is used for a grandfather with his grandchildren. And he saw his life as a blessed life. Now let's think about that for a moment. Think about how often we forget the fact of how blessed we actually are because in the moment something doesn't go our way. We... We get home and then find out and discover that they put the wrong salsa on our Chipotle burrito, and life goes into a tailspin. Joseph suffered 22 years of separation from his family, in prison, in slavery, in a pit, and even in the service of Pharaoh, which I believe Joseph would have preferred to be home with his family rather than even being in that position of authority. 22 years out of that 110 years, he spent in difficult situations and at a difficult time. And yet, when it was all said and done, he saw himself as blessed before he died. The Bible tells us that he had 17 more years with his father Jacob before he died. And when it was all said and done, Joseph could leave And die in peace and know that God was going to take care of the people, which he did as Moses led them out of Egypt several hundred years later. I think of Job. All that Job goes through. Every time I think I have problems, I remember Job. But at the end of it all, when you come to the very last uh, chapter, now, all right, spoiler alert, right here, if you haven't read it, here it comes. God restores everything plus to Job. I think we have to keep things into perspective, don't you? Regardless of what we are going through, when it's all said and done, and even if the difficulty or suffering leads us to that moment that we go home to be with the Lord we can always be confident that the moment that we separate, uh, step into eternity we are going to know that all things work out in the end one incredibly brilliant person felt that stated that one of the most misleading things that the american culture and the uh, has been subjected to is the storybook ending. And they all lived happily ever after. Now, let us be honest. In Joseph's life, it happened on this side of eternity. But in others' lives, it didn't happen on this side of eternity. But once they stepped into eternity, they understood all that was taking place. I think that sometimes we believe that God is simply here to give us that storybook ending. And often He does. But I don't follow God for that purpose. The storybook ending that I'm looking for is the ultimate retirement. So many are looking forward to retiring down to Florida. I love Florida. I love going down there. But when I get to heaven, I can be assured that we are not going to have Hurricane Peter or Hurricane Paul, you know, Hurricane Jude. I think that we have to keep things in perspective. Because once we step into eternity, even if our suffering leads us to that moment that we step into uh, eternity... It's when we step into eternity that we then look back and understand what God was doing the entire time. He was allowing temporal discomfort for an eternal weight of glory. He was allowing us to go through difficult times here that we would conform into the the image of Christ and allowing us to reap the benefits of the blessings of that transformation in eternity. What happens the moment after we die? We stand before Christ. We step out of this world and we step into eternity. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But the Bible also tells us that we will be given a a reward for all that we have done here on this earth in the form of a crown or More specifically, it appears that when Paul uses the word, it's a wreath of glory that an athlete would win after a ceremonial game. And it's the wreath itself that glorifies our Lord. In fact, interestingly enough, when you get to the book of Revelation, it appears that those wreaths are ultimately not worn for all of eternity, You know, there are some that we are never, ever going to hear of on this side of heaven. Individuals that the world paid no attention to whatsoever. But when we see them before their king in heaven, and the wreath in which they have been adorned with by Christ, we are going to be, wow, look at that, and then realize, you know, that we have a little pendant from Chuck E. Cheese. But I once heard it taught that these wreaths are something that we will carry with us, these crowns, if you will, will carry carry it with us all eternity, separating one from another. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that our final act of contrition before Christ in our worship of Him is to take that wreath and to throw it at His feet, Revelation chapter 5. Because it would only be possible for us to be there to obtain that reef if it was for what Christ has done on our behalf. Remember when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing? Truly, that is the case. But Joseph realized that the sovereignty of God trumps the free will of man as man freely exercises his free will. This is clear when it comes to Jesus himself. Think about the gospel message, if you will. Jesus Christ comes. He's born in a manger in Bethlehem, in pure obscurity and humility, announced by a star, heralded by angels, and yet revealed to shepherds. He then grew in, the, in Nazareth, making various pilgrimages to Jerusalem, even at 13, he was brought to the temple, and he began to teach, and his parents lost him there. I still want to be in that conversation in heaven where God the Father addresses Joseph and Mary, how did you lose God? You know, thinking about writing my dissertation on that. But when I, when I read that, I, I, I love the humanity that's actually uh, found in Scripture, but then the constant conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Finally, culminating, and if I may say climaxing, to the crucifixion. At the moment of the crucifixion, it would be easy to believe that man's free will superseded the sovereignty of God, wouldn't it? The plan and purposes of God. The only way the religious leaders could mock Jesus in the way that they did is if they had felt that they had won. Even though the Bible tells us that they were a little concerned because what happens if he did step out of the grave on the third day, petitioning the Romans to protect the grave itself. But Peter in the book of Acts gives us a very interesting verse to consider when we see all of this unfolding before us. Now, if you think that I may be reading into things, I believe actions speak louder than words, don't you? The actions of the disciples were not men who were confident of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, were they? The moment he was crucified, what did they do? They patiently waited his resurrection and then they stormed the world. No, they all went back to their jobs, didn't they? They thought it was over. They thought it was done. And even when they were told by the women who ran to the tomb or went to the tomb to tend to the tomb, they didn't believe them. It's easy to see or to conclude that God may have failed. But then the third day occurred. Regardless of the Roman soldiers who were around the tomb. Regardless of the religious leaders who tried to continue to convince the people that it was all a hoax. In the end, God won in a way, unprecedented. Even though he told them from the very beginning this was what would happen. Peter sums it up this way. It's a very interesting verse. It's found in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Verses 23 and 24. And I want you to notice within this verse the two varying perspectives that we find. The perspective of man and the perspective of God. Him, that is Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It was God the Father's determination from the very beginning that when Christ came, this is how his life would conclude. And yet, they went about it in their own free will, having Him crucified in the manner in which they did, and yet in all of that exercising of their free will, they perfectly fulfilled the plan and purpose of God. Chew on that for a while. Now, why do I again say this? Because I believe this is what Joseph realized. I believe this is what was demonstrated in and through the life of Jesus Christ. That God's plans were perfectly fulfilled. But it isn't until we read the book of Romans that Paul gives us an assurance of this theological fact. And it's Romans chapter 8 that I'd like to bring you to in our conclusion. In Romans chapter 8, it is a fascinating chapter that begins by understanding the suffering in which we experience here in this world. Now, the first seven chapters of Romans is what I would call theologically rich. Understanding how God is able to justify us in and through Jesus Christ before God. Understanding how we are saved in and through Jesus Christ. So, if you will take the moment to read the first seven chapters. Go ahead, you can do it now, I'll wait. And when you get to chapter eight, though, what Paul seems to indicate, he seems to indicate this, that understanding what God's doing is one thing, but then there's our perspective that would seem to uh, conclude and contradict what we know is to be true. Let me say that again because that was about as smooth as a city street in Chicago full of potholes. We know what God is doing, we have the promises, He articulates it for us. But yet, from our perspective, we're going through difficulty, suffering, trials, troubles, and tribulations. How do these two things coexist? And that's what Paul seems to begin to unravel for us and unpack for us when it comes to Romans chapter 8. And he begins Romans chapter 8 with the idea of suffering. But then he changes gears and he draws a conclusion that I believe Joseph simply realized And that simply what we have just read, Paul now shows us that this is what God has done for His people from the beginning. Let us begin, if you will, in verse 18 of chapter 8. Notice how he begins. For I consider that the suffering of this present time Sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Oh, wait a minute. Now he's starting to get to the brass tacks of things. Here's what God is doing. Here's what we're going through. And here's how these two things work together. And then if I may fast forward your attention for time's sake this morning, of course I want to bring your attention to verse 28. Now, again, as I have said, verse 28 is a staple of memorization verses from the Bible in the Christian's life today. I have seen t-shirts with this verse. I have seen posters. I have even seen salt and pepper shakers with this. Why that needs to be on a salt and pepper shaker, I don't know. But there's some purpose under heaven, I guess, for it. Meaning you're salting your your food and you realize you already have high blood pressure, but all things work together for good, you know. (laughs) I don't know. But notice what he says here. He sums up, he says, and we know. That all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Doesn't it sound very similar to what Joseph said? Oh, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The suffering that we're going through is working in us and shall not be compared with the glory that should, will be revealed in us. Now, it would be irresponsible for me not to qualify or define the word good for you. We have a tendency in our nation, and I don't think I have to make an argument for this, we consume information on the basis of what I like to call sound bites, Right? bullet points and in so doing we often do not retain the context in which that statement is being made and using one verse in and of itself and separating this verse from everything that precedes it and succeeds it in the bible would allow us to define the word good in any way we saw fit to do so and often we put in that place something that we want All things work together for good. That means God's going to give me the job I want, or the relationship I want, or the money that I want, or whatever it may be, the Corvette. Good Christmas idea for your pastor. Remember, God doesn't care how fast you get to 55. Um, We could subjectively define that word in any way, shape, or form, but Paul does it for us. Because I never find on the t-shirt or the salt shaker or whatever it may be, verse 29. Verse 29 clearly indicates what the good means. And of course, I know you all know this, but for our sake of discussion, I think it's important to repeat. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's the good. To be conformed into the image of his son. So the suffering that we're experiencing, God is using to conform us into the image of His Son that will uh, provide for us the glory revealed as He stated in verse 18. That we might be the firstborn among many brethren. In verse 30, moreover, whom he has predestined, these he's also called, and whom he's also called, he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Meaning this, that he who has started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And he'll often use suffering in our lives to do so. Now, we could leave it there and conclude, but I don't want to do that. Because Paul goes on in what appears to be a portion of Scripture, which I call, you know, a praise of combustion. After theologically considering everything that he has written up until this point, thinking now that the suffering is actually being used by God, what the world intends for evil, God intends for good, he concludes with this incredible combustion of praise. And I'd like to conclude our time together by reading this with you, if I may, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Everything that he has just said, our suffering leading into our glorification in Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, who? The answer, nobody. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? He's saying, this is what we saw in Jesus. He suffered at the hands of man who believed that they were bringing about their will. God then showed and demonstrated that his will was being fulfilled And we now have the same assurance that the suffering and the evil that we experience as Christians is working in us for an eternal weight of glory, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, just as Jesus had suffered. Verse 33 Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's you and I who are in Christ. If you want to know your elect, come to Christ today. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us? Who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I love that, I love that question. Please know, know what Paul is saying here. The attempts of man to stop the plans and purposes of God have only led to the fulfillment of the purposes and plans of God. You thought you stopped Christ? Christ? You thought you hindered the work of God? He rose again and is now at the right-hand authority of God the Father Himself. You lose, Satan. That's what he's saying here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, again, there's our perspective, right? We're going through the difficulties. We're going through the suffering. We're going through the trials, troubles, and tribulations. Yet, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. Bottom line, we win when it's all said and done. Joseph is a remarkable example for us. We've learned a lot from his life. And today I leave you with this that Joseph's life demonstrates to us that God is with us. And at the end of Joseph's life, he realized that even though what his brothers intended for evil, God has intended for good. And whatever you're going through today, whatever you might be experiencing, Whatever trial, trouble, or tribulation that you face today, know this, that you are not alone. God is with you. He will see you through it. And in the end, you will realize that truly what Paul says is true. All things work together for good to those who love him and are called to according to his purposes. You can be assured of that today.